Blog Talk Radio. Hello, friends. Welcome to another edition of Theology Matters with the Palouse. And I have an excellent show for you tonight. I got my good friend uh, Clinton Wilcox here. He's on uh, the line with us. And for the uh, kind of a pro-life, pro-choice, and uh, how to respond to a lot of those uh, particular arguments. And so uh, we'll be looking at those tonight. And uh, it's been a while since we've done a show. Uh, and so we're going to be um, kind of going over a few things we've got coming up. We've got uh, tomorrow, if you're in the city of Rock Hill or the kind of the surrounding areas, we're going to be um, having uh, David Geisler from Norm Geisler Ministries. He is, of course, Dr. Geisler's son. He's going to be uh, with his team at Rock Hill Bible Fellowship Church, and that's going to start at 9 o'clock tomorrow. That's actually the church I attend, me and my wife and little girl, so... Uh, we'll be there tomorrow from 9 to 12.30, and I'm going to be looking at conversational uh, evangelism and exactly uh, how to do that. Uh, and so uh, be sure to join us for that. Uh, big event coming up February 5th. Uh, we will have Frank Turek with us at Winthrop University doing our Big Ratio Christie uh, event of the semester. Uh, we'll be looking at um, If God, Why Evil? And so that will be February 5th in the McBride Hall. So you definitely, definitely uh, want to be there for that. Really trying to pack out the house. Uh, you know, as I said, it's been a while since we've done a show. Uh, I think my wife did the last one on, uh, I think, like, critical race theory with a couple of people. And uh, we plan on on doing more shows um, again Uh it's a little easier to do more shows during the summertime. It's, it's a little rougher during the school semester because we have, you know, picked up some more um, stuff that we're doing. We're now uh, doing meetings at York Tech, uh, which is a technical college here in Rock Hill, and meet there on Wednesdays. And that's been really interesting. I've had a good group of, of uh, students coming out for that and good discussion. Uh, and so, uh, feel free, if you're in the area, to come on out uh, for that. And then uh, Tuesday nights at 8 o'clock, room 221 in Diggs uh, area at Winthrop University, we do our weekly meetings, and we're going through um, kind of world religions right now. We're comparing and contrasting them to Christianity. And so, uh, again, if you're in the area, of course, you can come check these out. <clears throat> We'd love to, love to have you guys. And... Uh, the goal is to learn, you know, know, more about what others believe, why they believe it, and how we can engage uh, others for the gospel. So with that said, I want to, to uh, introduce my uh, first guest here, uh, Clinton. Uh, Clinton, are you with me? Uh, yeah, David, I'm here. Okay, hold on one second. I'm gonna I'm gonna go to a commercial really quick, and uh, I'm gonna try and fi- figure out some of these a uh, little bit of a technical difficulty with the echo. So let us uh, work on that, and then we'll be right back. 
Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to to curious questions. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. My name is Bobby Conway, and I am here with Corey Miller, the president of Ratio Christi. It's good to have you on, Corey. Thanks, Bobby. I appreciate the opportunity. Tell our audience, what is Ratio Christi? Ratio Christi is a campus apologetics alliance. It just changed from student apologetics alliance to campus apologetics alliance. And we want to fa- focus like a laser beam on apologetics evangelism on the university campuses. And how many uh, different uh, you know, chapters do you have right now? We have over 150 university chapters and some international as well. It's growing like crazy, isn't it? It is. How can people get involved? Uh, go to ratiochristi.org. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you so much for your passion to create a vision and work with people to implement a vision to make sure that our students out there can figure out the answers to their toughest questions. friends and we're back we're going to hopefully hopefully have that uh worked out a little bit sometimes you don't foresee those things in the future but uh let's see if if uh, that works a little better clinton are you there can you hear me okay yeah i'm here i can hear you okay wonderful i think that sounds a lot better so uh you've been on the show before i think um i know you've done at least one debate with us right yeah uh, yeah, I did a debate with uh, with Matt Delahunty on the topic of abortion. Right, that's right, and I think he actually helped me uh, co-host the show <laughs> uh, with, oh, yeah, uh, I think with so. uh, Pro- Professor Samples, if I recall. So, yeah, with, with his book uh, "God Over Stages" or something like something like that. God among stages, right? Yeah, God, God um, among stages. I can't remember if I've if we've ever actually done a show where we just are looking at uh, arguments for the for the uh, kind of pro-choice position and how to respond to those. Have we done anything like that together? Oh, um, I'm not sure. If we okay. did, it was you know several years ago. Okay, well that's good. I know it'll be good to to uh, to do this show again. So. Um, Clinton, tell us a little bit about what are you doing out here in, in uh, the Carolinas? Where are you from, and what exactly is it that you do? Okay, well, I live in a town in California called Sanger, which is about 30 miles, or uh, probably a little less, 15 or 20 miles, I think, east of Fresno in the Central Valley. Uh, basically, every January, I come out to the March for Life in Washington, D.C., and then I come up here to um, Rock Hill, South Carolina, and stay with uh, with Devin and his wife Melissa for for about a week or so. And you know they put me to work while I'm out here giving talks and you know that that sort of thing. So I talked at uh, I talked to the church, I talked to a couple of uh, college groups, and uh, doing this podcast tonight, of course. And then on Monday, I'm also going up to Chapel Hill to do a talk at a at a church up there. And so yeah, so it's just, it's just basically a little little bit of a speaking tour that I'm here on right now, and uh, what I do is I'm I'm basically a, a pro-life apologist, and you know an apologist is someone who makes a, a r- rational, reasoned case for a particular position, 
And so you may, uh, you know, your listeners may be familiar with Christian apologists, you know, philosophers like William Lane Craig, Alvin Flaninga, uh, you know, popular apologists like Greg Kokel, Frank Turek, uh, those, those kinds of people who generally defend the Christian faith and do a great job of it. Uh, I specialize a little bit more in that I, I specialize in bioethics. And uh, which is, of course, uh, ethical concerns related to uh, to the margins of life, basically the beginning and end, um, and you know certain other uh, other ethical issues that deal with with life um, that are kind of in in the margins. Um, and so that's basically what I, what I do. And I'm a, a speaker and a, a writer, so I do give presentations. And I do travel, like like I said, I'm here in South Carolina, where whereas I live in California. But I also do some writing as well. I write for several blogs. Um, Life Training Institute, the organization I work for, is one blog I, I, I submit articles to. Um, also, Secular for Life is another one. And I've also been publishing in journals like the Christian Research Journal and Bioethics, which is one of the leading uh, bioethics journals in, in the world. So that's just a little bit of uh, what I do for the, for the um, pro-life movement and bioethics more generally. Wonderful. That's great. And uh, I know you've been a good friend to us for for uh, several years, and we're we're really glad you're able to come out here, and and uh, we definitely put him to work. Had, had this guy speaking like uh, six times in four days, and uh, yeah, you know, he came down with a head cold and everything. So <laughs> appreciate you, yeah, powering through. Yeah, so I'm gonna, yeah, so I'm gonna try and keep my uh, coughing and uh, and sniffling to a minimum here. No, nah, that's that's okay. Uh, we figured what we would do tonight, folks, is kind of open up the uh, phone lines, and we'd love to hear from you guys if you guys have questions or, you know, um, abortion is one of those issues that can be very, you know, emotional. And so, you know, it's in the news a lot right now, uh, you know, what is, what's going on with abortion. And, you know, everybody pretty much has an opinion on the issue. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people, it's it's hard for them to, uh, you know, engage their coworkers or their friends or their families because, again, people have, you know, people have uh, very strong opinions on it. And so, you know, we want to know, you know, how, how can we look at this issue and, you know, defend life? You know, as Christians, we would say we're called to do that. Um, of course, you also write for um, – you know, uh, groups that are not religious. And I think what's powerful is, you know, we can make the case for life apart from um, using the Bible. So, so obviously I'm, I'm a Christian and I believe that the Bible is true and that's not to denigrate the Bible. But I would say all truth is God's truth. And, for example, if it is true that God exists and it is true that Jesus rose from the dead, well, there should be evidence for that, right? Um the person who's living out in, you know, a particular country that doesn't have access to a Bible, I would still say they can still know that God exists. And um, so when we look at some of these issues like uh, abortion and that and the right to life, uh, the Bible definitely speaks on on that. I think you can make certain inferences from the text. Uh, but we also want to be able to have these discussions if you're dealing with, you know, like where, where example for us, where we're working in the university area, um, you know, in the, with, with college students, 
you have to be able to make that case apart from people that don't believe in the Bible. You know, you have to be able to look at biology and philosophy and, you know, the sciences. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. Uh, again, we're going to open up the phone lines. Anybody wants to call in? Uh, I know we have a friend. I have a friend who's going to be uh, calling in here in a bit. Uh, but if you would like to call in, the number is 619-768-7314. That is 619-768-7314. would love to hear from you and your questions. Again, maybe you, you want to know how to defend the pro-life movement uh, or the, their arguments. Maybe you are not pro-life. and Maybe you think there's a lot of problems with it and you see inconsistencies in the arguments. And uh, you know you want to call up and have a have a discussion on that. We would love to to hear from you and have that uh, discussion. So uh, anybody is welcome to call on this topic. Again, the board the, the uh, topic is on uh, abortion. So you know, Clinton, you've told us a little bit about uh, what you do. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about why should we why should we care about this issue? Why should people care? You know, you are single. You're not married. You don't have kids. Uh, you know, some would say, hey, you don't have any stake in this game. Why do you care so much about this issue? Well, the reason that I um, care so much about the issue is, for for one reason, I am a former embryo and, and fetus. And so even though it doesn't affect me now, it did affect me at the beginning of my life. So every human being, because, you know, every human being, with, with some exceptions, uh, come into existence inside the, the body of the woman, and others, of course, are uh, have been created in a lab and then implanted in later. But uh, but all of us enter life the same way. We're we're fertilized from uh, from a sperm and an ovum cell, and so all of us, um, you know, who are here today have been uh, inside the the womb of our of our mothers. And um, and if you were conceived after 19 or in 1973 or after, then you were at risk for abortion at one at one time. So. All of us, being former embryos and fetuses, are affected by it as well. Uh, another thing is that I don't have to be personally affected by a human rights abuse in order to speak out against it. Um, back in the 1800s, when chattel slavery was legal here in the United States, you know, we had black people who were being enslaved by white people, and you know, uh, yeah, you had um, you know black people, of course, would speak out against it because they were the ones being oppressed, but just because a white person was not a plantation owner or was not black himself and therefore was not personally affected by the issue of slavery doesn't mean that, that no white person uh, should have been speaking out against slavery. Of course they should have because a human rights abuse affects us all. But whether or not it directly affects mm-hmm. us, it affects us because if we dehumanize human beings and it's, it's a, you know, if we dehumanize any class of human beings, then it's just kind of a small step for dehumanizing other people. Yeah, no, that uh, that makes perfect sense, and I think you're right. We should all all definitely uh, care about that issue. Uh, one of the things that's that's really in the news right now, and I think maybe it's caused a little bit of confusion, and and some people are just not sure what to make of it. But uh, talk a minute about the situation going on in New York. Uh, I mean, at least one positive that has come out of it is it is definitely. I uh, got a lot of conversation going and a lot of people talking about this, but what exactly happened in New York and uh, what's, what's the um, kind of what's the, all the, uh, the talk about. Yeah. Well, uh, the New York state Senate 
um, voted and passed a law, mm-hmm. uh, a very extreme abortion law, and of course Governor Cuomo uh, signed it when it uh, reached his desk. It's the most uh, permissive, the most extreme abortion law in the United States. And so what it what it did uh, essentially is it, it didn't really change much about the abortion situation. What it really did is it brought New York's abortion laws into line with Roe v. Wade, so that if uh, Trump or the Republicans ever overturn uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey and Roe v. Wade, um, then abortion would not be illegal in New York. It would uh, The status quo would be maintained in New York, even if um, the abortion laws that are on the national books now eventually get overturned. Now, it did go a little bit further in that the new law allows non-doctors to perform abortions. Um, nurses, I believe, are, are part of those. And a, a couple other, um, uh, which I'm, I'm not entirely uh, sure about at the moment, but uh, non-doctors are able to do abortions. Uh, and basically uh, what the new law did is uh, you, you hear people say that now abortion on demand is permissible in New York up until the point of birth, which, of course, is true. But that was the situation anyway under Roe v. Wade, Planned Parenthood uh, v. Casey, and Doe v. Bolton, because what Roe v. Wade established is that uh, after the point of viability, uh, a state could restrict abortion um, as long as it uh, as long as it's not necessary for the woman's life or the woman's health. And then the sister case of Roe v. Wade, which was Doe v. Bolton, passed the same day, January 22, 1973, basically defined health so broadly, as Scott Gusendorf says, you can drive a Mack truck through it. They said uh, health can be anything related to a woman's emotional health, physical health, family health, financial health, et cetera, et cetera. So they defined it so broadly that um, a woman can basically just uh, can, that a woman can just come up with basically any any justification for abortion as long as she can convince her doctor that it's necessary for her health, she can get uh, a, a, an abortion at any point. And so, uh, so that's basically what the New York law did. Is it brought New York's laws into into step with Roe v. Wade in case Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey ever get overturned? Okay. Well, that is uh, that is very good, and I appreciate you kind of catching us up to date uh, on that. And um, yeah, I think it's good that just we're we're able to be informed and able to. Uh, how to respond to these things because there's definitely opportunities that are that are there. You know, people are talking about it, uh, and a lot of times before, um, you know, hadn't really been uh, as prominent, but now it's definitely something to talk about. So again, uh, the number of people who are wanting to get in on the show and maybe ask a question, you can call in at six one nine seven six eight seven three one four. That's six one nine. Seven six eight seven three one four. Would love to hear from you. Um, so I'll just kind of play a little bit of devil's advocate with you, Clinton, just to see, um, you know, how would how would you respond to some of these objections that often come up? Uh, we were listening to a, a clip of the uh, Joe Rogan show the other day, and uh, he had a, a gentleman on there, and it was uh, it was a very it was the most interesting discussion I think I've ever. Seen on on abortion, but 
one of the points that was made was, uh, well, if you were if you're a man, then you really don't have an you know you really shouldn't have an opinion on abortion uh, because you don't really have any stake in the game. And I know you addressed a little bit about that uh, earlier when you were saying that well you you know were an embryo at one point and that. But when you hear those kind of arguments, um, how, how do you respond when someone says, well, you're just you're you're a guy, you're not a, a woman, so you you don't have anything to say. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the response I would give is that arguments don't have gender. People do. So, you know, just pretend I'm a woman and address my arguments. Because, you know, I, I have female friends in the pro-life movement who make the same arguments I do. So uh, other than that, my response would pretty much be the same, that uh, I'm not a woman, but abortion still affects me because it's a human rights abuse. Um, and one does not have to be personally affected by a human rights abuse or directly affected by it in order to be uh, to be right in speaking out against it. Um, and then, of course, there's, there's other things we can mention, too, in that, you know, uh, men are also affected by abortion, and they can be affected just as emotionally uh, by an abortion as, as a woman can. And, you know, I've, I've talked to men like that, and I've, I've uh, heard stories by my colleagues in the movement who have spoken to men uh, who have been deeply affected um, by abortion because uh, the girl that they had sex with and got pregnant went and had an abortion against the guy's will. And that is very emotionally difficult for a lot of men. So men have a stake in the issue as well. Yeah, that's good. You hear um, a lot about uh, women's rights, but maybe not so much about men's rights uh, with, (laughs) with that whole issue. So that's, that's a good, that's a good point. Um, You had had, you know, we looked at, uh, you know, there's several different kind of categories of arguments that uh, come up with the um, abortion issue, and uh, I'm sure we'll be able to kind of look at some of those. Uh, We've got a caller on the line now. Maybe we can go to him and uh, look at a few things. There you go. Caller, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you, Devin. How are you doing? It's Chris. Good. How's it going, Chris? Uh, it's wonderful. It's Friday evening, and the week, work week's <laughs> over with. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I hear you. I'm looking forward to that as well. I appreciate you calling in, man. That's, uh really, really appreciate you calling in. I know it's yeah. probably better, it's better first things time to on a Friday, but... Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about that, but I, I enjoy a good conversation any time, day or night, any day of the week. Yeah, well, um, maybe tell us a little bit about your interest in this issue, and um, maybe you have some, some questions for, for Clinton. Well, um, I mean, I'm pro-choice, uh, and I make no bones about that. And I've I've been that way uh, for pretty much most of my life. Whenever since I've ever even you know begin to thought about the the issue itself, and I noticed that you know um, as I've studied religion, and I'm an atheist, um, this is a topic that comes up often um, when you're uh, reading about it or listening to anything on uh, the internet about abortion and. Uh, whether or not you know it's an it's a religious issue or not, so right. Um, yeah, I, I I listen to the points that are being made by uh, both sides, and you know I've just come to the conclusion that you know, uh, pro-choice is the way for me to be. 
<laughs> what would you say to that, Clinton? So someone who's saying, you know, he's he's kind of seen both sides and seen both arguments, and um, <clears throat> and uh, I, I assume. Chris, a lot of the people you've seen that make the pro-life arguments are kind of coming at it from a religious point of view. Would that be correct? Uh, most often, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. They, they do come from a, a biblical viewpoint on abortion. Right. <clears throat> so what say it's, you, Clinton? Oh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't mean to cut you off, Chris, if I had. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Go ahead. Go ahead, Clinton. Okay. Yeah. So um, yeah, and, and this just kind of illustrates how um, you know sometimes when when people study an issue, they can come to different conclusions about it. Because um, my the way the reason that I eventually became pro-life is because uh, I was in college and I had to do a speech on a controversial topic, and the topic I chose mm-hmm. was on abortion, and it was through uh, through oh, studying boy, it. That is because, a controversial one, there for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I could have picked a, a more controversial topic at the time. I mean, you know, things like marriage <laughs> might be it now, but back then, definitely abortion was one of the one of the biggest. Um, and, and so, yeah, so uh, I actually had to present. Um, I had actually had to present both sides of the issue uh, on this, and I had to present it in such a way as it was balanced, so that the people listening couldn't tell which side of the issue I came down on. And so I, I really studied both sides of the issue too. And at, at that point, uh, for me, I kind of went the opposite direction. It seemed to me that the arguments for the pro-life position uh, I felt were stronger than the pro-choice ones, and so that's why I became uh, pro-life as well. And it's definitely true that a lot of people approach it from a religious aspect. And, of course, what I would simply say to that is that, you know, I'm a Christian too, and I would say that the pro-life position is consistent with Christianity, but it's not dependent on Christianity. Because, number one, if I'm going to make the case that that the unborn are human from fertilization, I'm not going to turn to the Bible because the Bible is not a science book. It doesn't have a discussion of when human life begins. It does say things like, uh, you shall not murder, it says God hates the shedding of innocent blood, all of these kinds of things. But the, but the question is, you know, do the unborn count as one of us? And so for that, we have to turn to science and philosophy. And so if science and philosophy show us that the unborn are one of us, then I think that they would also fall under these prescriptions against killing. Because, again, the Bible doesn't say that infants or adults are human beings either. It just It's not really concerned with that kind of a question. So for those we turn to non-biblical sources. And especially if I'm going to be talking to atheists, well, I'm going to use authorities that they respect. I'm not going to use the Bible because obviously they don't hold that as a valid authority. So, um, yeah, so that's that's basically where, where I would approach it as well. What, what do you think of that, Chris? I mean, as far as looking at, okay, what does science say? What, is, what does philosophy say about this? Um, are those, you know, areas that, you kind of respect. I, I know a lot of atheists, you know, really, really kind of champion science and biology and that. Um, how about you? I mean, are those areas that uh, you, you respect? Oh, yes, very much so, and no doubt about it whatsoever. I mean, you know, I, I think when I first became aware of the issue, you know, and I'm 49 years old, so I don't know when when I first began to think about abortion. I mean, it was you know many many years ago. Uh, I, I'm sure that what came to, the way it came to me was it, it was a, a religious issue, 
that, you know, I, I noticed that it, it seems like there's two groups. Uh, there's the anti-abortion group, and they're always got their Bibles out, and they're always, you know, pointing out some some verse or something that tells you that, that abortion's wrong, even though you can't find that word anywhere in the Bible. And then you've got the other group, which is predominantly women, and they're just making an argument that, you know, listen, it's my body. And, you know, I listen to this, and I'm going to... I mean, uh, I guess what probably tilted me over toward the pro-choice position is, to me, and some of your viewers are probably, our listeners are probably going to be offended by this, but I think um, the anti-abortion crowd is more likely to distort facts and just outright lie about the issue more so than anyone else who discusses abortion. And that repels me. So... You know, when I'm looking at any issue and I'm using uh, – I'm looking at what a philosopher would say or I'm looking at what science says about it, I'm thinking that, you know, this better be it – it doesn't just need to be logical and make sense reason with reason. It also better make sure that the facts are stand up for truth. Yeah. And in, in, my, in my path, in my past, like I say, it's like – I hear somebody talking about abortion, and for some reason they don't give you all the facts, or they're sure. deliberately leaving something out, and that bothers me because it's like, you know, you're either don't know what you're talking about completely, and we can all say that that's true of, of mo- many of us about many issues. We we don't know everything about e- everything, but right. it also makes me wonder: Are you trying to con me? And I, yep. I, let me just give you an example of this. Let me just give you one example of this. Um, several years ago, I was at a town hall meeting with Trey Gowdy, who was the 4th Congressional District uh, Congressman. Um, and I forget how many years ago this was, but he had a town hall, and up uh, uh, there was a vote taking place soon in the House, or it had already taken place, about a 20-week abortion ban. The House wanted to pass this bill and just ban all abortions after 20 weeks. And, you know, I'm thinking of this issue, and I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute. It takes almost 40 weeks for, you know, a pregnancy to come to term. Why would anybody want an abortion at 20 weeks? I mean, sometimes I can have a – I can make – it could take me a while to make a decision. But whether it's a small decision or a big decision – I usually don't take 20 weeks to figure it out. You know what I'm saying? Sure. I mean, that seems really, that seems really strange. I mean, especially when it's a big gargantuan question, like, you know, do I want to remain pregnant or not? Do I take mm-hmm. 20 weeks? And I don't, you know, I, I can't say as I know any woman who's ever had an abortion. I'm sure I probably do. They just never just come up, but you know, I had to look into that. And I had to ask Congressman Gowdy about it. I was like, have you considered why would a woman want to have an abortion at 20 weeks? And I kid you not, he had voted on this thing, and he said point blank in front of a room full of people, standing room only, no, I've never really thought about why a woman would want an abortion at 20 weeks. And it Hmm. just floored me because I'm just like, 
did you not think to ask somebody? Because when I heard this issue was going to come up before the House, I was like, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to wait 20 weeks? And he didn't bother. He didn't bother to answer that question. He didn't bother. It came to him. He was just like, oh, this is a this is an, a bill. This is an anti-abortion bill. Oh, I'm going to vote for it. I mean, it was like some sort of gut, you know, reaction. You know, I'm just going to do it. And he's not really going to think about the consequences. And the con- and really, the consequences are quite profound when you look into why are people having ab- women having abortions in 20 weeks. Sure. Yeah, well, and I, th- I think, you know, one thing that we can all agree on is, you know, we want uh, – we should want the truth of, of uh, you know, the situation. We don't want people misrepresenting, you know, facts or putting forth half-truths, <laughs> you know, on either side of the issue. So I think we would certainly – uh, definitely could agree with that. We don't, you know, Christians, uh, you know, we need to be more informed on on these issues, and we definitely don't want to speak um, half-truths about anything. Clinton, uh, your thoughts on, on what Chris was saying there? Yeah. Um, you know, I share Chris's concerns about um, making sure that the facts that we present are accurate, um, to, you know, and of course, to the best of our understanding, um, I might push back on a couple of the things that Chris was talking about. That uh, I'd like to respond to just a couple of the things. Um, let's start with his claim that um, that uh, that the pro-life movement uh, distorts facts. And now I can't speak for uh, for every uh, pro-life person, but uh, so I'm, I'm sure there are probably some pro-life people who are just not very knowledgeable in the facts or, you know, maybe they do it uh, intentionally. Maybe they don't just because they don't really have all the information. Um, but I would, I would say that in general, pro-life people are not uh, distorting the facts. Uh, they do occasionally use facts which are disputed. For example, uh, pro-life people argue that uh, the fetus can feel pain. Uh, usually they're, um, you know, a little earlier than the pro-choice person. Like, you know, they'll say, you know, it's at 20 weeks, and so they'll they'll try and push a, a, an abortion ban at that point. Some of them uh, believe that it happens even earlier than that. And, of course, uh, pro-choice people will say, well, no, it doesn't happen that early in pregnancy. It happens later. Uh, and then you have, of course, the contested uh, breast cancer uh, link with abortion and other uh, certain things that are supposedly linked to abortion. And so if these are the kinds of things that Chris is talking about, then I don't think it's exactly fair to say that pro-life people are distorting the facts. What, what I would think if it was more accurate is just that they're using disputed facts, and maybe they're treating them as if they're undisputable, uh, which, you know, uh, which I, I wouldn't encourage them to do. Uh, you know, we need to recognize that if we have evidence for these kinds of claims, we need to understand that they're not exactly uncontroversial, that they are uh, – being uh, disputed, but um, I would also say that it's not unique to uh, the pro-life movement because we know uh, through uh, through the books and the, the speeches of uh, formerly pro-choice people that um, that the pro-choice movement is not a, is not above distorting facts in order to make their case. Um, Bernard Nathanson, who was the former president of of NARAL, and in fact he actually uh, uh, formulated NARAL, and he was the past president of it, later became uh, pro-life after he started 
seeing what actually goes on in, in an ultrasound. Uh, Bernard Nathanson actually talked about in his book, Aborting America, that when they were trying to push for legalization of, of abortion, they actually, uh, they actually used facts which they blatantly knew were false, that they would claim that some 5,000 to 10,000 women every year were being killed by, uh, by uh, illegal, dangerous abortions. And in his book, Aborting America, he says, you know, we, we, we knew that these claims were totally fabricated, but in the, and, you know, I'm quoting him now, in the morality of our revolution, we weren't going to let something like honest statistics get in the way. So uh, the, the uh, pro-choice crowd is not above distorting facts in order to make their case. So even if it goes on in the pro-life crowd, I would say, you know, it, it happens in the pro-choice crowd too. And so we shouldn't necessarily let uh, distorted facts get in the way of whether or not our arguments are correct. And so w- what we really need to do is we just need to consider the arguments being made, and then we need to look into the evidence ourselves. And if we see that the, that the facts are disputed or they're not accurate, then we know that the, the argument that's being presented is not true. Um, and then just to address the uh, claim about abortions after 20 weeks, uh, actually the best evidence that we have is that most late-term abortions are uh, for, for non-medical reasons. Secular Pro-Life, who is a non-religious pro-life organization, has written an article called, uh, well, you know, uh, the, the title is basically just straightforward. It says, no, most late-term abortions are not medically necessary. And they, they quote uh, studies, which I can, uh, you know, if you have show notes, uh, we could post the link to, to these articles in the show notes if you like. Um, sure. that, um, for example, 71% of women who had late-term abortions just simply didn't recognize that she was pregnant or misjudged gestation. So if we're, if we're asking, you know, do, do women have late-term abortions? And if so, uh, why would they have a late-term abortion? Well, a, a huge chunk of women have late-term abortions because they simply just didn't know that they were pregnant at the time. And, of course, you know, you have television shows, you know, which are aptly titled, I didn't know I was pregnant. So it's not like these are actual rare occurrences. There are, there are several things, like if the woman is overweight, for example, uh, she might not recognize until late in the pregnancy or even until the baby gets born that she was even pregnant at the fir- at, in the first place. So 71% of women, according to a 1988 study, um, showed that 71% of women didn't recognize that they were pregnant or misjudged gestation. And, of course, they quote um, later studies, which are closer to today. Um, so, for example, uh, according to a 2004 study by Guttmacher itself, Guttmacher being the uh, research arm of Planned Parenthood, uh, 74% mm-hmm. of women having late-term abortions said that having a baby would dramatically change my life. 73% said they can't afford a baby now. Uh, 48% said they don't want to be a single mother or have relationship problems. And all of these situations are are not for medically indicated reasons. Um, they, uh, they show that 13% of women who had late-term abortions, according to this 2004 Guttmacher study, uh, had had the abortion because of possible problems affecting the health of the fetus. Twelve percent was because of a physical problem with the health of the mother. So, uh, so the evidence shows that in fact women are having uh, late-term abortions for non-medical reasons. And one of the ma- you know a couple of the, the uh, major reasons for this is because either they didn't know they were pregnant, or for whatever reason they just weren't able to schedule uh, an earlier abortion in time. Well, and so I those are just kind that. of the, I mean, the claims that I would uh, that I, I would uh, I, kind of take issue with. 
I, I have a hard time believing that. Um, I, seriously, um, to be perfectly honest with you, I just for someone to tell me that you know I didn't know that I was pregnant, I find that hard to believe. I mean, it may happen to some people. I mean, it, it certainly could. It's not out of the realm of possibility. But if if you engage in a sex act and you don't use some form of protection, you have to realize one of two things may have happened, or may or or, or both may have happened. You may have just contracted an STD, or you may find yourself pregnant. Again, if you're not if you're not wise enough to use some sort of a contraceptive when you're having sex, you have to count that it's a very high possibility that something you didn't want to happen is going to happen, whether it be a pregnancy or an STD. Now, as far as um, uh, the medical reasons, everything I have looked at when I have looked up late term late term abortions, and you know, I, I think we're generally talking about abortions that would take place, you know, twenty weeks and more, have always been mostly because of fetal abnormalities, and it's something like less than two percent. It's closer to one, a little bit over one percent of all abortions. Are happening? Are these kind of abortions that are, are considered late term? And it's because something has dreadfully, it's gone dreadfully wrong with the fetal development. And the, the the woman's doctor is telling her, "This is what happened. We don't we don't necessarily know why it happened, but we feel like two things are probably going to happen with the, with your pregnancy." One, your fetus is going to die very soon before it's even born, or two, it will die very quickly after it's born. And what I read, the tragedies that I read about, this happens in some places where when the woman discovers this, she's devastated. I mean, she's heartbroken because, again, it doesn't take most people 20 weeks to make a decision. I mean, it might have been a surprise to her that she discovered she was pregnant, but at this point in her life, in this pregnancy, she's probably already reconciled herself to the fact that she's going to be a mother, and maybe be a mother again, you know, whatever the situation is. But she's planning to go through with it. I don't know if if she ever considered abortion at an earlier point and just didn't change her mind or what, but at this point. She wants to do it. She wants to keep the baby, carry it to term. Maybe she plans to adopt it. I don't know, but whatever. It's yeah. it's not a situation where, oh, I, I've changed my mind. I just don't want to be pregnant. No, it's they're faced with this horrible situation where the doctor's telling them, your child is missing part of its brain. Your child is missing several different organs that have not, are not being constructed completely the way they should be. We recommend you do this. And at that point, obviously, it's for the woman's decision. She should make the decision what to do. They need to give her all the uh, relevant information about how this would affect her and put her at risk and at the babies as well. And yeah, this is what I understand to be late-term abortions. Yeah. Let's do this because just for me, because we have a limited amount of time. Uh, Clinton, if you want to just take a minute or so to respond to that, but I would be interested in maybe hearing the discussion because we haven't really had that discussion as, um, you know, when does life begin? Does, you know, does mm-hmm. that matter, you know, when life begins? And maybe some of, I don't know, Clinton, if you have an argument um, 
you know, for the pro-life position uh, or something like that. But take a, just a minute or so to respond to uh, Chris on that, and then maybe we could have a little discussion as to kind of the whole relevancy of uh, when does life begin. Good, good, Glenn. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have much to say to that, except simply to say that, you know, uh, we, we may have a difference of opinion on this, but I'm actually, but I'm actually going by a, a study by Guttmacher Institute. And Guttmacher, of course, is an organization that is not hostile to abortion. They're a Planned Parenthood's research organization. So I agree with Chris that we need to be sure we have facts and we're representing the facts correctly. Uh, and, and so I, I have the Guttmacher uh, report right in front of me. It's called, you know, uh, Reasons U.S. Women Have Abortions, Quantitative and Qualitative Perspectives. And so, you know, I, I don't know what else to say other than according to the study, I mean, maybe, you know, m- maybe you might make a case that, you know, a, most of these women were just not being honest about the reason they were having the abortion. But considering uh, w- that so many people think that uh, that late-term abortions are only for medical reasons, it seems it doesn't really seem that 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 believable that so many would lie about having abortions for non-medical reasons. And so that, that, that's really all I have to say to that. And, yeah, we can continue to dispute the evidence, but, again, uh, you know, I'm not situations that women might have abortions. I'm pro-life because I believe that the unborn are full human persons from fertilization. And so that is really where the conversation, I, I, I feel, should be focused. I mean, we can continue to, to have these other conversations because I think they're important, but I don't think they're really getting at the heart of uh, whether or not abortion is, is permissible. Good stuff. Appreciate that, Clinton. What do you think, Chris? Um, would you say when do you when when would you say life begins? Kind of in in, in your understanding. Well, you know that's a very hard question to ask, answer. I mean, whether you're right. a scientist or a philosopher, and I'm certainly neither one. But I mean, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the research that I've seen and what convinces me, it's going to be later in the pregnancy. It's not going to be at fertilization, simply because I mean, I, and I actually work with a uh, fertility specialist who who told me when we we discussed this issue, uh, when you know sperm meets egg and it's fertilized. Uh, there is something like a range of 30 to 80% of these fertilized eggs will simply be flushed out of the body before it implants. And according to, according to medicine, you know, pregnancy doesn't even begin until that fertilized egg has actually attached itself to the uterine wall. So uh, a lot of people think that, you know, well, it's when you know, sperm meets egg, and that's, that's when life begins. Well, you know, apparently not to nature. And apparently not to God either. There is such a thing, because so many of these fertilized eggs don't implant, and they just are are, are kicked out of the body. And again, I've looked at some of this research about fetal development, and to me, um, it doesn't matter if you have a heartbeat or you got your own fingerprint or whatever. It's it's it's. It's the mind. You you have to have a brain to to a, a certain level of development. You've got to have the neural pathways, and this is what occurs somewhere along the 24, 26 weeks of pregnancy. And I've noticed over the years that you will, at least you know, since '73 when the Roe decision was made, you will see that 
medical science has come a long way, and it's been able to help women who um, who have a lot of complications in their pregnancies, and and things just aren't going right, and the baby gets born far earlier than it should be. You know, at, at certain times in the past, you know, this was just you know a a horrible tragedy, but medical science has come so long, so far along that you know a lot of these preterm babies can now be saved. And what I find is that um, a lot of them are are going to survive simply because they have been there in the womb long enough to at least get their some basics development in their brain structures created. This doesn't mean though that as they age, as you know, once they uh, are released from the hospital, they don't have problems. They will right. have some issues. They could be slow learners, maybe have some problems with speech, and who knows what else. But, you know, it's not like, you know, science can, you know, take an embryo or a fetus at 13 weeks out and and put it, you know, in an incubator, and, you know, it, it developed normally like it were in the womb still. So to me, again, I'm thinking that, you know, once you get some basics uh, as far as your your nervous system, especially your brain, which is, you know, the most complex computer ever, then yeah. we're talking about sentience. We're talking about this this child will have some sense of self awareness. Mm-hmm. Okay, Clinton. But you can't what say you, you, you can't that? say that to a, fe- a fetalized egg. <laughs> Yeah. Right, as far as it being having self awareness and that, that's right. Okay, so it sounds like you're saying you 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 would not consider life beginning at conception. You don't think that is correct. Um, you think mm-hmm. that um, there is because there's a lot of natural <clears throat> supposed abortions where you know the the uh, embryos don't make it and they're flushed out. That would seem to suggest that life doesn't begin at conception. And it seems like you're saying more of later development when brains and heartbeats and stuff like that uh, starts to come is when maybe that's at some point during that process, you would say that's, that's when life begins. Mm-hmm. Correct. Okay. Clinton, what do you, what would you say to that? Um, well, I guess the, the first question I would have, um, I would have for, for Chris is, uh, what sense of the word life are you referring to? Are, are you disputing that the that the embryo is biologically a human being from fertilization, or are you disputing that it, uh, it's a it's the kind of human being that has rights that we are obligated to respect? I'm not saying that a fertilized egg is a human being that has the same rights as you or me or the, uh, any woman. No, I do not accept okay. that. So are, are we in agreement, though, that it is at least a biological human being at that point? Yeah, well, like, 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 like I, I mean, in, in the sense like that it's a member of our potential. Team. It's more like potential life. Well, potential well I mean, like more life. in the sense that I mean, like more in the sense that it's a biological member of our species at that point. I'm, oh, I'm not making I any mean, claims no. right now I'm, about philosophy right, or I'm not, or anything. I, no, I'm not going. Yeah, I'm not going to deny that. Okay. Okay, so then, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so, okay, so if if you're not going to deny then that the, the embryo is a biological member of our species, then uh, then what we really need to move on to then is philosophy, because if we're going to talk about 
human rights, that's not something that science can speak to. Uh, the, the question of rights is a metaphysical question. And so, you know, if you're going to say, uh, for example, I don't believe that uh, that it's a, a that it's a life in the sense of having rights, human value, and dignity until uh, it has some kind of uh, basic rudimentary nervous system. Well, we can use to show when the the embryo develops uh, a nervous system and how far along it can be, but that doesn't tell us that that's the point at which the organism uh, has rights that we're now obligated to respect. That's a philosophical claim, not a scientific one. So if we're going to say that human life begins with fertilization, uh, you know, in the sense that it's a biological member of our species, well, then the question becomes, uh, at what point are we obligated to treat it as another human being? Is it relevantly like an adult to, to the, the point where killing it is the same kind of crime as uh, killing an adult human being. And for that, uh, I, you know, my view is that um, the right to life is a basic human right. It's a fundamental right. It's not a right that's established by government. It's a right that we all have based on the fact that we are human beings. And so if human life begins with fertilization, if, if the unborn from fertilization are biological members of our species, then, uh, then I, I, I would say that they are also persons at that point. They have rights. Um, that we are obligated to respect because um, having rights is not about the kinds of functions that you can perform. It's not about, uh, you know, how viable you are to see whether or not you can survive outside, outside the womb because really uh, adults are not viable in certain environments. If we're going to say that viability is uh, what, what grounds my obligation to treat someone with human dignity and respect, well, then it seems like uh, I could go and throw someone overboard underwater and claim that I didn't murder them because they're not viable in that uh, in that underwater environment. Or an astronaut in a spacewalk uh, could be suffocated by a fellow astronaut because he cannot survive in the vacuum of space. And so, um, so it's not viability then that seems to be what grounds our rights because uh, not only uh, are all human beings non-viable in certain environments, but viability is also kind of a moving target. It's nothing... Uh, it's nothing intrinsic to the embryo or the fetus itself. It has everything to do with medical technology. Fifty years ago, a, a fetus born at uh, about 26 weeks could have had a, a relatively good chance, chance of survival. Uh, today, a fetus born sometime around 24 weeks would have a relatively good chance of survival because medical technology has progressed to the point that we can that we have a good chance of saving uh, earlier premature uh, fetuses. And um, there, uh, scientists are also working on uh, on artificial wound technology. And so if artificial wound technology ever becomes a reality, well, that would push viability back to the point of fertilization because now you can keep uh, an embryo or fetus alive in that artificial environment. And, of course, that technology is still probably 10 or 15 years off, but they've already had success uh, with with animal species, like keeping uh, lamb fetuses alive in an artificial womb. So it's entirely possible that that kind of technology will become um, a reality eventually. So viability is really just a moving target. Uh, and then, of course, if we talk about things like brain activity and a nervous system, well, the, the problem with this idea is that uh, these are all degree properties in that, you know, all of us have different levels of brain functioning. Like I have a lot... Uh, more complex brain functioning than a toddler does. But if we're going to place our human value on something that comes in degrees, something that we all have more or less of, 
then we would have more or less respect to us as human beings, and we could mistreat those who have less development uh, than we do. And so uh, if we're going to treat, if, we, if we're going to take the view that all of us should be treated equally, uh, what grounds that is something that we all must have equally. And so it can't be things uh, that rely on, on development, like brain activity, uh, nervous system, sentient, self-awareness, things like these, because these are all uh, developmental milestones in the same uh, biological organism. So it, it seems to me then that if we really want to ground human equality, it has to be grounded in something we all have equally. And the only thing we all have equally is our common human nature, our humanness. And this is something that is shared by the unborn from fertilization. And so that's why I, I would think that uh, that we are obligated then to respect the life and dignity of the human embryo. Okay. Okay, Clinton. That's can, can you hear me okay, Clinton? Oh, yeah, I can hear you. But there's a little bit of like a scratching sound that I'm hearing, but I, I can hear okay. you fine. Chris, can you hear me okay? Uh, the quality's not all that great, but it's it's not confusing me any. I can hear everyone. Everything's being said. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm trying to trying to trying to get the trying to get some of the kinks here uh, worked up. You guys it's can fine. hear me okay? Okay. Yeah, I'm yeah, not having any problems. Yeah, Devin actually put me in a big uh, in a big cage, uh, you know, in the backyard <laughs> because. Uh, uh, we were getting an echo from my phone, so. Uh, well, Clinton, that's what I was going to say. I think I've got it. I think I've got it figured out to where you can come back yeah. here and and, uh, and use the mic. Uh, I think it'll be okay. So, uh, if you want to hang up okay. and then come here, I think that'll help the uh, quality actually. Uh, so All right, try, I'm no longer an outcast. All right. All right. So we'll we'll try that. Uh, this is a. This is a good discussion, Chris. I, I, again, I appreciate you calling in and being willing to have oh, this I'm discussion. With us. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So um, Clinton's making his way back here now. I think he's here now. So uh, what are some of your thoughts on some of the things that he had said on that? Well, I mean, they're very interesting thinking, uh, but, but, you know, uh, um, you know, we, we're learning more and more, obviously, thanks to science. As to you know how life develops, how it begins, and I you know I personally don't know anything about you know artificial wombs, and uh, that's uh, almost kind of scary to me to even think that that maybe even ten years away, uh, you know there's just you know just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean you should be doing things, uh, and I, I hope a lot of scientists keep that in mind when they're they're doing things like that. Um, yeah, and you know, I, I actually I actually agree with you on that. Uh, I'm I'm l- a little reticent about the reality of uh, artificial limbs, also. Like, I, I'm not convinced that they're the best thing that we ought to be working on. But it is something that they're that they're working on developing. So we we actually you know we're actually kind of in agreement there. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have um, as humans. I mean, we have a lot of other problems that we need to uh, resolve first. I mean, we're we're too prone to violence and. Um, we're not caring enough about uh, a lot of people's uh, the plight of other people, um, but yet you know we we make these technological leaps. I mean, I, I'm, I'm I'm sitting here at my desk. I've got this phone up to my head, and I'm talking to you guys. And I just remember listening not that long ago that you know the the, the computer on board the Apollo 11 or whatever it was that took Neil Armstrong to the moon was no smarter, no better than the computer that's next to my head. And right, I mean, that, right. you know, that was, the, that was the year I was born, 1969. And I'm like, wow, think about that. 49 years and, you know, have come and gone and they've managed, you know, 
to that's all they took to the moon was their it was basically a computer that now fits in my pocket and then, you mm. know that's that says a lot about our ingenuity it says our inventiveness and such and our or i guess our intelligence too but still i mean uh, we have a morally and ethically we have a long way to go still and they're just some areas where we don't need to be tinkering in, into, I think, until we have some other issues resolved. Um, I, I, I did want to say one thing, though, and, you know, if, I, if I'm wrong and, let's, you know, life begins at conception and such, I, I, I just want to know if you guys have thought about the implications of what that really means. Because, you know, here in South Carolina, they will probably take up the personhood bill again in, in the legislature this session. And, uh, you know, I'm looking at this, and I'm, it worries me because basically if it passes, it's going to mean that people will be able – virtually anyone, especially someone with a badge, will be able to look at a woman who's pregnant and decide for himself whether or not she's doing something that may endanger that fetus and that – Fetus, according to this new law, if it ever gets passed, would have the same equal rights as him or anyone else and the mother. And he would be in his um, – he'd have the power to you know, stop her from whatever she's doing. Now, if she's drinking, yeah, that's probably a good thing if she's pregnant and drinking. But, I mean, do you really want you know, someone else who's not a medical professional – to walk in into the, a situation like that and and tell a woman that you know I I don't you're not eating right you know that that hamburger you're eating is really greasy you know you should be eating a salad or something I mean that worries me that you know as a libertarian almost to a degree that I, I am that you would be giving someone that kind of authority that power hmm. uh, did, did you say you're a libertarian. Well, I, to some degree, not. Re- I'm not really hard nosed about it, you know. Really, no, no, no I, I'm not. I'm not judging you. Just to be, just to be clear, because I, I have friends who are uh, libertarians. No, I, I wouldn't say I'm very strong in that sense. I, I mean, I am worried to a, to a degree about you know individual rights and yeah. you know just power. Do we give the state and you know who right. are we giving the power to to make certain decisions? And that's what worries me about you know a personhood bill that you know basically you know okay if. If that fetus has the same rights as everybody else, does that mean that someone in authority with you know with a badge is going to be able to just start judging women who are pregnant and deciding for themselves, even though they have no medical background whatsoever, oh, I think she's doing something that's endangering that child. I'm going to put her in cuffs, and I'm going to take her to jail, and I, I worry about that. And at the same time, I'm also concerned about the fact that uh, or at least it, it's um, it, it gnaws at me sometimes that when you you hear people uh, asking about an, or advocating for another law that affects abortion and to make it more difficult for a woman to get one because you know for since seventy three you know there's one side that's always trying to chip away at it I mean they're just trying to take they'd like to get rid of the whole thing at one time if they could but they'll be they're happy if they can just chip away at it a little bit you know make women you know. Um, three-day waiting periods, you know, before they can have an abortion. I mean, you know, which is absurd. Make them go through unnecessary ultrasounds that they don't need, they're not medically needed, or they have to listen to some spiel that, you know, some non-medical person has written but is requiring healthcare professionals to read to a woman about 
an abortion and what it's going to do to you and the fetus or whatever, it worries me because um, I, I don't understand why every single law about this always has to affect the woman. Every one of them. It has some, yeah, obviously that's where the the pregnancy is going to occur, but they seem to forget something. The basic biology. Now I know it's been a long time since I was in high school, but I remember when a human female begins to mature sexually, she's going to be fertile for like thirty, thirty-five years or something like that, depending on you know thirteen, fourteen, whenever it begins, up until. Her late forties, fifties, whatever. That's how long she's going to be fertile. Us guys, once we become sexually uh, mature or whatever, begin to develop, we can be fathering children until we're nearly dead. Uh, if we live to a hundred, I mean, so who is responsible yeah. for this issue? I, I mean. I was involved in uh, last year where we were actually retrieving sperm from a guy who died in a car accident. We were trying to save some of his sperm who had died tragically in a car accident. You couldn't do that with a woman. You you just couldn't do that. Right. But, what do you think? But, what are some of your thoughts? Yeah. Well, um, there's just a couple of a uh, couple of questions in there, and I you know I want to make sure I address <clears throat> them both with. Um, with, with the, the attention that they deserve. Um, so the, the first question, uh, how would we treat women who aren't doing everything that's necessary for their child? Um, yeah, I mean, there, there is a legitimate concern there because obviously uh, e- even, even today uh, there are lawmakers, uh, you know, law enforcement officers, et cetera, who, who do uh, abuse their station um, as law enforcement and as lawmakers. And so uh, there's, a, there's a definite concern when we when we want to enact laws, and that that's definitely a concern that that, that I um, that I'm cognizant of, and I um, you know so we, we need to make sure that whatever laws we draft are are very specific and don't leave anything open, uh, you know as much as we can, don't leave them open to interpretation. And so you know because I I believe that there are obligations a pregnant woman has to her child. You mentioned. Uh, a very reasonable one that a woman should not drink while pregnant, and of course another one is a woman should yep. not smoke. And so uh, right. I, I think, that, yeah. And so I think I actually think that there should be consequences um, if if a woman uh, smokes or drinks while pregnant because she's doing something that directly results in harm to her unborn child. I don't believe that we ought to police her her private life. Uh, you know, for, for example, if she if she wants to, you know, early in the pregnancy, if she wants to go like skydiving or something, I, I don't necessarily think that that's that that's immoral behavior, and I don't think that that the cops should be uh, should be that involved in so, in someone's life. Um, what what I would really say to that is that we have now uh, law enforcement officers who take older children away from their parents uh, who are who are being negligent toward their children, and so I I don't think that if the unborn are fully human persons like uh, like toddlers and infants are that if a woman is intentionally uh, being being negligent in some way or being intentionally harmful toward her child i don't think that that uh, is that it would necessarily be wrong for us to have some kind of of consequences to that uh, now I, i'm not 
you know, I'm not a, I'm not a lawmaker, and there, there's a lot of nuance that goes into what kind of, of punishment we establish for for a particular crime. So I don't know I don't know exactly what type of punishment would be necessary for that. But what we do see uh, from before Roe v. Wade is that when the unborn were for the most part protected in law. Um, we saw that women were not being prosecuted en masse for their personal decisions while they were pregnant. It, it just wasn't happening. And so while I think that there is some, some valid concern there, especially from what we see in law enforcement now, obviously there are good law enforcement officers, but there are also law enforcement officers and lawmakers who, who abuse their position. Um, so I, I think there's some concern there that's legitimate, but I, I don't think that it's going to usher in an era in which women are just, being prosecuted all the time for the personal decisions that they make. And that wasn't happening before Roe v. Wade. I don't think it's going to be happening after Roe v. Wade. And then regarding your question about why do the laws have to affect the woman, again, uh, I, you know, I, I'm pretty much in agreement there. I think that men are equally responsible for the pregnancy. I believe that men should mm-hmm. be held responsible for the child. And I believe that yeah. you know, if, if we're not going to allow a woman to abort, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I, I don't think it should be that easy for a man to get out of his obligations either. So I, I really think, you know, obviously now we have uh, child support laws. And, you know, of course, I, I hear the objection that, you know, it, it's easy to kind of circumvent the, the child support laws. So I definitely think that there needs to be a lot of reform in, in these kinds of things. But I, I do think that both the woman and the man are equally responsible for the pregnancy. And I think that both should be held responsible for any children that they create. And ironically, uh, we, we've seen a breakdown of the, of the nuclear family. Uh, and now, obviously, this is, this is a whole different discussion, uh, you know, about like what marriage is, what kinds of, of families uh, make a marriage. And that's not one that I'm, I'm really, uh, you know, interested in pursuing right now because it's kind of beside the point. But uh, considering now that uh, – that there, there are, there's, you know, so many broken homes, a lot of uh, divorces going on, these kinds of things. It's a lot more difficult now to pin someone down and expect them to be responsible if they, if they create a child. And so uh, I, I do think that it would probably require some reform as far as, as trying to restore uh, balance to, to family structures as well. Um, because once, once that happens, then you, you, you don't necessarily have men, you know, running around getting several women pregnant because what marriages actually do is they actually domesticate men and that if you require, uh, you know, if, if, if we start seeing again, respecting uh, the act of sex again as the procreative act and one that is germane to a marriage relationship, uh, well, then if you expect a man to, uh, to marry, um, you know, with permanence and with exclusivity, uh, and we actually require, uh, you know, we, we, make, we don't make it so easy again to, to, to divorce a woman. Like it's, it's incredibly easy now to, to go through divorces. If we, make, if we uh, go back on no-fault divorces, then it'll be a lot more difficult for men to, to go around and impregnate a, a large number of women because they'll be responsible for, uh, for their one family. And so I, I think that this would also probably require some reform in our divorce laws as well. And so I, I definitely think that we ought, that the law should affect the woman and the man equally, and that both the woman and the man are equally responsible for any child that they create. Okay. Well, good, good, very good points. I think made by both of you guys. And uh, did you have any other questions or anything you wanted to ask uh, Chris? And maybe I'll let Clinton if you've got. Do you, do you have a couple minutes left before you have to go, Chris, or do you need to go right now? Or? Well, 
I have one other question. I'm not in a hurry to leave now. Okay, wonderful. Maybe you could ask uh, him a, a question, and then he can respond and ask you a question. But uh, go ahead. Sure. Yeah, uh, depend, regardless of where you fall on the issue itself, I, I just want to answer to the question of, you know, why isn't it the woman's decision to, for her to decide what to do with her own body? I mean, I just cannot think of an issue where, you know, you would expect men to just renounce their rights and do something with their bodies that they didn't want to do. I mean, I think women are fully capable of making this decision on their own, uh, weighing the pros and cons and deciding what is best for them. And and many of them do. I mean, obviously, you know, the vast majority of abortions take place in the first trimester. And a lot, most of those women are also mothers to begin with. So it's not like they don't understand what being a mother is about. It's not like they don't understand what being pregnant is about, what births are like. They've been through it. They know what it is. So it's yeah, their body. I, like they, I think that they should yeah, make that decision. Yeah, I mean that's a straightforward question, and to be honest, that's probably one of the biggest, you know, one of the biggest objections we hear all the time. And I think, you know, to to a lot of people, it makes sense. So, Clinton, why can't uh, you know a woman do what she wants to do with her own body? Yeah, well, um, I'll answer that in just a moment. I just want to point out that uh, there are some situations in which in which men are required to perform an act that they don't necessarily want to do with their bodies. Um, Number one is is the draft, and traditionally the draft has been uh, just men who sign up to the selective service, and if a war breaks out and they need uh, other recruits, they would then draft men. Now we've been sort of opening that up to women as well, from what I understand, but uh, the draft is one example I I could think of in which a man is required to do something they don't want to do with their bodies, namely uh, go off to war, uh, potentially kill people, or be killed in the war. and you know, obviously, but there's some. Be, oh, yeah, but you could be in a conscientious objector. You can be a, a conscientious objector and and mm-hmm. not be affected by the draft. And that wasn't always true, obviously. True, but it is well, true I mean, today. Yeah, you could be a conscientious objector, but they they still, from what I from what I understand, uh, and it may have changed since since I registered for the draft many many years ago. Uh, that if you're a conscientious objector, they still send you off, but they give you some non-combatant positions, such as uh, be, such as being a medic. Uh, and so you're, you're right. still required to go off, but you're not necessarily required to go and fight. So you're still required um, to, to go, you know, overseas or here at home if they bring the war here um, to, to do something with your, with your body that you don't want to. And even if we, if, if we don't necessarily use the draft as an example, there are some other ones such as uh, requiring uh, people to wear their seatbelts when they drive a car uh, things like that, and you know, requiring them not to use uh, not to use some sorts of of illegal substances like marijuana or or some of the harder drugs. Um, so, so there are some examples in which men uh, are required to act in such a way that they don't want to with their bodies. Um, so, so it's not necessarily just women. But the the way that I would respond then to the the women's aspect of the bodily no. rights. Oh, I'm sorry. 
Go ahead. Go ahead. It's fine. Oh, okay. Sorry, I thought, I thought you, were, you were saying something. Okay, so the way that I would respond then to the, to the women aspect of the bodily rights is that uh, it, it seems to me that, and, and again, this is, this is uh, predicated on whether or not the unborn are, are human persons. If they're not human persons, then I think that the, uh, that, that the oppression of the bodily rights would probably be, be enough such that an abortion would be permissible. But if the unborn are human persons, then it seems to me that especially in the vast majority of cases when sex is consensual, that the, 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 uh, the embryo and fetus exist by a consensual act by the woman and the man. So in that case, it seems like uh, a right to bodily autonomy would not justify um, killing the, the embryo or the fetus. It might justify removing it if, you know, we can remove it, it you know, like if, if artificial womb technology becomes a, a possibility or something, it, there might be an argument to be made that you can remove the fetus as long as you can do so safely without killing it. But uh, I don't think that uh, one's right to bodily autonomy justifies taking the life of an innocent person. For example, if I were to block somebody, uh, if I were to block a doorway and somebody asked me to move and I refused to move, um, I think that would be wrong of me. I, that, that, would be, uh, that would be a really you know, bad thing for me to do. But I don't think that someone would be justified then in killing me just to remove me from the doorway so that they can leave. So I don't think that, um, I don't think that a right to bodily autonomy, while it is a very important right, I don't think it justifies killing an innocent human, human person. And so that, that's why I would say that really the, the, um, the, the main issue that we need to address is, is, you know, are, uh, is, are the human embryos and fetuses, are they persons with human rights and human dignity? If they are, then I think that abortion, at least in the vast majority of cases, would be, would be wrong. Uh, and if they're not human persons, then I think that abortion, at least in the vast majority of cases, would probably be permissible. All right. Um, I guess I have one other question. Um, sure. Just a, or a thought I just want to throw out there. Don't you think the best way to um, you know, prevent abortions? Uh, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think we'll ever go down to zero. There won't be any unless there's just some, you know, outright law that no one can ever have another abortion. No medical school can train a physician on how to do it. But I think the I don't you think the best way to reduce abortions is through comprehensive sex education in our schools so that our children who are beginning to mature sexually will un- begin to understand exactly what is happening to them and what are the consequences of certain actions. And on top of that, also um, – I think we also need a situation in this country where the blood contraceptives that are available uh, for each of us, and apparently most of them are, are, are work for on, on the female. Not, there's not that much out there for men. That everybody has access to this stuff, and that what you choose to use will be determined by you, the individual, in consultation with whoever, whichever health care official you want to talk to, that, you know, you can get this kind of drug, you know, to if, so you can have safe sex or you can have an abortion if needed, and your pl- employer can't say anything about it. They have no say in it. And that 
unless it's and they always have to be, of course, FDA approved. But you know, you can't say that uh, a legislator will ban one or another as well. Don't you think if we go that route, the number of abortions will decrease substantially when people understand, you know, uh, how to avoid it to begin with? And number two, uh, the mechanisms to help you avoid pregnancy are readily available. Yeah, okay. So uh, regarding the best way to reduce abortions, and uh, I, I, I agree with you. I don't think that abortions are ever going away. I don't think we're ever going to reach a point in our society where absolutely no one is having an abortion. Uh, and I, I think that's mm-hmm. true. Even if we were to make abortions illegal, there would still be illegal abortions going on, as there was before uh, before Roe mm-hmm. v. Wade was passed in 1973. So I don't think it's I, I just don't think it's feasible to change the minds of everyone in our society in such a way as to make them you know completely agree with the with the pro-life position. Um, if we're talking the best way to reduce abortions, uh, whether or not making them illegal is the best way to reduce abortions, making them illegal does reduce abortions because people in general are law-abiding citizens. And if you remove the, you know, quote, safety net, end quote, of abortion, then people will be more responsible with their sexual choices because they don't have that option available. And uh, as the philosopher Aristotle has noted, um, the law is the moral teacher. Uh, a lot of people actually became pro-choice after the 1973 decision because there's this inherent uh, view from people that whatever is legal is also moral. So if we make abortion uh, illegal again, then people will switch back to, uh, at least in general, uh, a more pro-life position because of the illegality of it. Now, that's not to say that I think uh, comprehensive sex education doesn't work. It's, you know, I think I think it's very plausible that if you're going to teach um, you know, comprehensive sex education, how to avoid pregnancy. I think it, it's very plausible that that would reduce uh, the number of abortions. I don't know if I would necessarily agree it's the best way to do it. Uh, and, and there are a couple, there are two or three reasons why I would say that. Um, because number one, uh, again, Guttmacher Institute, Planned Parenthood's research organization, has shown that, that there's actually a significant number of, uh, of girls and women who actually got pregnant despite the fact that they were using contraception because uh, either they weren't they weren't very uh, they weren't very uh, they weren't using it correctly uh, or it failed right. or you know something along those lines. So there is a significant or number failed, of yeah. women who do become pregnant despite the fact that they're using contraception. And even uh, even then, you know, no contraception is 100% effective. Um, but plus, right. it, it also seems like if we support uh, if we support you know, contraception, then what, what's actually going to result is you're actually going to be, there's actually going to be more sex being had than, than less sex because uh, people now think that they're being safe. And so, um, and so they're going to have a lot more uh, riskier sex, uh, you know, sexual encounters because they, they have this assumption that being on birth control is going to basically uh, prevent pregnancies. Uh, and, and of course there's a, a, a pro-choice, uh, advocate in England, um, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, oh, I'm blanking on her name. I'll, I'll have to look it up here. Um, she runs uh, the one of the most well-known uh, pro-choice organizations in England uh, called, mm-hmm. called BPAS, BPAS um, which is in the UK. Uh, uh, totally uh, 
Uh, yeah, because uh, she had a debate with Greg Cunningham. Uh, I, I'm, I'm blanking on her name at the moment, but she actually made uh, made an argument that contraception doesn't necessarily uh, reduce abortion numbers because now when you have uh, the, the, the whole contraceptive mentality actually uh, actually has instilled in uh, men and women that uh, they should actually be having families later. And so now that uh, women are using contraception and don't want to be pregnant, they want to be pregnant later because now uh, they have all of these sorts of things going on. Like they want to support their job. They want to be able to finish school. Uh, all of these things are going right. on. But now they're being encouraged to have abortions uh, when they get pregnant at points in which they don't feel uh, that they are ready to have a child. And so this contraceptive mentality actually has the re- actually has uh, a, it, it might seem sort of counterintuitive, but it actually has this result where more abortions are being had because now uh, women and men are wanting to wait until later in life. And so if they get pregnant early, then they'll go and have an abortion because they, they're going to want to form their, uh, their families uh, later on in life. And so I would say that even though it, it seems plausible on the face of it, because contraception uh, is, the, you know, the function of contraception is to avoid pregnancy. Um, in, in, actual, uh, in actual practice, I don't think that that's the actual um, situation that's going to happen. And so I'm not saying necessarily that we shouldn't uh, teach a, a comprehensive sex education. Uh, what, what I am simply saying is that, uh, number one, I, I do think that we should stress abstinence, even though uh, I don't think necessarily that we should do abstinence only. I think it should be at least stressed because that is the only uh, option in which a couple can pursue that is, is absolutely not going to result in pregnancy. So I think that that should be stressed, even if you're going to teach uh, contraception. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I think I just think that uh, the contraceptive mentality um, has a kind of a counterintuitive uh, result in that it can actually lead to increased abortions for the uh, for the reasons that I've already mentioned. All right. Good stuff, uh, guys. I think we're, we'll go ahead and wrap up here. It's close to eight o'clock. Uh, Chris, if you want to take a minute or so and give us your final thoughts and let Clinton wrap up. Again, I want to thank you for for uh, for calling in. I'd like to have you on. Maybe uh, I mean we can talk maybe next week or something. I, it'd just be you and me have a discussion maybe on uh, the existence of God. Because I know you mm-hmm. said you're you're an atheist, and uh, and uh, mm-hmm. I'd like to maybe have that discussion with you next week. But uh, uh, thanks thanks again for coming on. Give us a couple uh, oh. a minute or so uh, in your closing thoughts, and then we'll just toss it over Clinton, and then we'll go ahead and uh, end the show. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for the opportunity to talking with you. I enjoyed this uh, um, meeting with you both over here over the phone and uh, discussing this issue. I I enjoyed it a lot. I appreciate the opportunity, and um, uh, I think this is what we need more of in this country. That's for sure. We need more civil dialogue about yes. these important issues. Amen to that. This is, uh, this is uh, a very important issue, no doubt about it. But we're losing the ability to talk other people and 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 rationalize with other other people i mean uh you i hate to say it but i mean uh you know you you need to be able to emphasize you need to be you know we have what is it we've got two ears in our heads and we've got one mouth and for some reason (laughs) we seem to use more of our mouth than we use our our ears and that's not i don't think that's the way we're we're designed so to speak you know we 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 need to listen more and and stop speaking and you know um we don't do a lot of that anymore and it it helps i mean you you're you, you 
you can't get so comfortable in what you believe that you don't want to listen to what anybody else has to say because I feel like I need to whatever it is that convinces me about God or you know tax policy or abortion if I don't bounce it off on someone like you guys think differently about these issues then how can I can how can I really convince myself that what I believe is correct I mean you, I need to be challenged basically I need to be challenged well, and I think that, you know, we, we have that in common, even though, you know, you and me have different worldviews. You're you're a delightful guy. I mean, you really are. I, I, I Every time yeah, I've talked to you, I've, I've, I've always enjoyed, you know, our conversations. And, you know, I think we're, we have a lot in common in that we both want to think deeply and we both like to think and we both, you know, we, we you know, um, you know, even though I'm not an atheist and, and don't have that atheistic worldview, you know, I read mm-hmm. works from atheists and I listen to talks from atheists and I can appreciate, you know, I, I can appreciate good arguments and good questions and, and good reasoning. And, you know, I hope this show, you know, for, for Christians, maybe that uh, get uncomfortable around those who don't have the same worldview. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I tell our students all the time, yeah. all truth is God's truth. And so we shouldn't fear philosophy. We shouldn't fear science. You know, maybe our interpretations of certain things are wrong, and we need to be open to you know to have those things challenged. But we should you that, know we should know what we what believe. You, what you just said there, don't be afraid to be wrong. That's right. very important to say because you know what we're fallible. I mean, I'm more wrong than I am right. I'm sure many times, but we don't need to fear it because, I mean, we just need to learn. Yeah, where did I go wrong? I'll um I'll message you uh, when we get off here, and like I say, I'd love to set up another time where you it'll just be just uh, conversation. So God, I think that'd be a fun talk. Okay, yeah, sounds good to me. Sounds very good. Yeah. So uh, before before I um sign off here, I I I, I found the person who I, I was trying to. Uh, Try, trying to remember her name. Uh, my, if any of my British friends or my friends in the American uh, pro-life movement are, are listening, they're probably yelling at their computers because uh, I was just blanking <laughs> on her name. Uh, it was Anne Ferretti, uh, who runs the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, which provides abortions to nearly 65,000 women a year in England and Wales. So there, I've, I've properly cited the woman whose uh, abortion uh, uh, argument I was using. So, uh, so there, we're, we're good now. Okay, so uh, yeah. So uh, Chris, what I, was her name again? Oh, Anne Ferretti. And, and yeah, okay. so that, that was so she just kind of had what what I thought was kind of an interesting perspective on contraception as well. Uh, not that she thinks mm-hmm. it's wrong to use it, but just that she had kind of an interesting perspective coming from a, a pro-choice advocate, uh, you know, from overseas. Um, so yeah, so Chris, I, I do want to thank you for coming on here and having a civil discussion. I, I think it's I think your attitude is very admirable, uh, and uh, it's one that I try to emulate as well. And so um, yeah, I, I really appreciate that you were able to to you know come on the uh the program and, and have that discussion yeah i appreciate it both i, I enjoyed it uh I, I hope we can do it again soon yes yeah yeah sure yeah next time clinton's clinton will be back here again next year around this time because he always comes for the march for life but maybe we can all get together and you know grab some lunch or something get yeah, to meet cool. your face to face. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah indeed yeah. indeed <laughs> well you two right, guys uh it. have a good evening and a great weekend i'm gonna go fix some dinner i think <laughs> Thank you, too. you too, man. Take care. Thank you, Chris. All right. Good night. Bye.
All right, friends, that was uh, my good friend Chris, and uh, Chris is an atheist, and I tell you, I, I appreciate the attitude, I appreciate the civility, and, um, you know, I look forward to talking to him maybe uh, hopefully next week we can have a discussion on uh, the existence of God, and I know that'll be another charitable discussion, and again, folks, you know, theology matters, uh, worldviews matter, and... Uh, you know, the issue of abortion, I think, really matters. And, you know, it's, it, it, it has struck me. You know, I look at Clinton again. He's, he's a guy. He's, he's, he's single. He's not married. doesn't have a bunch of kids. And this guy spends his life defending, uh, you know, children in the womb. And uh, it's just it's a beautiful thing to see and to watch. And I certainly have all the respect in the world for you. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. that. Yeah. And then, you know, the feeling is definitely mutual as well. Thank you, thank you so much, man. And hopefully, hopefully, my my voice has because I, I noticed like a little bit of a of wavering in my voice a little bit as I was talking, and you know, I I don't think it's a head cold because I haven't been feverish or anything like that, but I I do think it's pro- it could be just with few symptoms, but it could also be allergies, and so I, I just hope that my voice, you know, was, you know, good, good enough for the for the podcast. Yeah, no, it's, I think everything was fine. We uh, we brought poor Clinton here on uh, one of the coldest weeks. Right. of the year yeah. out here you know it's uh you know in the in the high 40s and uh kind of nasty but uh but it's been good and uh, it's been a wonderful week of ministry uh the tuesday night again did a defense of the pro-life position if you go to rational christie at winthrop uh university on facebook you can follow our page you'll actually see the talk josh gave there wednesday we had a good discussion on buddhism at york tech with the student and um you know, yesterday we led a think group with several students at Winthrop, again, discussing uh, the issue of abortion. Uh, and tonight, again, we had that discussion with Chris. Um, you know, me and me and Clinton are actually both uh, supported missionaries. So we're, we don't work for the same group. I'm with Ratio Christie and, of course, my wife, uh, Melissa Palou, is the chapter director, and, and uh, she's uh, at Winthrop as well. So, um uh, Devin Ratio Christie, uh, you know, if you look up on the Facebook, uh, or the, not Facebook, but just on the web and look at the uh, Ratio Christie chapter directors, it's a way there you guys, uh, you know, if you, if, if you think what we're doing is valuable, um, you know, we need supporters, you know, we're asking people to, you know, $25 a month, you know, uh, less than a dollar a day, really. But, uh, you know, not everybody can go out and go to the college campuses and spend the time doing that. And it takes, you know, it takes, you know, people to do that. Sometimes people think of missionaries as those that are, are those over in China or Japan or these faraway countries. I'm telling you, folks, uh, one of the most hostile places on the planet is the university. And you got people like Clinton. Again, he's with uh, Life Training Institute. Uh, this is a missionary trip for him. This is a this is a trip. He's not here just to have fun. I mean, sure, we've had fun, but you know, he's he spoke five or six times in you know four days. Yeah, and I have another coming up on Monday too. So. Right. So, uh, Clinton, where can people go if they want to support your ministry? Where can they go? Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, you can. I mean, you can find me online. I have a, a you know pretty pretty big uh, presence online. You can find me on Facebook. Um, you know, just search for my name, and I should come up there. Um, you can find me. I, I do have a personal blog, which I haven't updated in probably a couple of years, because now that I am affiliated with Life Training Institute, I focus on doing the LTI blog. So you can find me 
Um, you can find me on, on the LTI blog where you go to www.prolifetraining.com and then you can find the blog in the drop-down menu on the top. You can also find my articles at the Secular Pro-Life blog, which would be blog.secularprolife.org. Uh, I publish articles for Secular Pro-Life as well. And we talked a little bit about the religious aspect of pro-life people, but Secular Pro-Life is, is an excellent organization of non-religious pro-life people. Uh, and and I also consider them all to be you know good good friends of mine. So um, yeah, so definitely check them out. You can find me on the blog there as well. Uh, and like I said earlier, I I also do some writing in in journals. You can find me in Christian Research Journal. Uh, I just published two articles with them uh, last year. Uh, one of them being on how to have civil discussions with abor- uh, on abortion with with people who disagree with you. And uh, and I uh, published last year in Bioethics also, which is a peer reviewed bioethics journal. So, yeah, various places you can find me. You can also find me on Twitter. Uh, Clinton underscore Wilcox is my uh, Twitter handle. So there's a few places you can find me. Yeah. And for those who don't know, Clinton is also quite the gamer. He oh. didn't tell me this, but uh, he stomped uh, me in Mortal Kombat. And, uh... <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't trying to uh, – trying to, to what, what is it called? Hustling or hustle? – yeah. well, I wasn't trying to hustle you. Because uh, I, I post about my, my gaming on Facebook, yeah. so – yeah, he hustled me out of a box of my little debbies in the uh, wow. Street Fighter game. So. Yeah. <laughs> all right, folks, appreciate you all being here. Keep us in your prayers, and uh, again, uh, we're going to try and come back next week and do another uh, discussion with Chris. We'll look at the uh, arguments for the existence of God. Uh, we're going to try and find a regular day to do the show. Um, you know, Friday kind of works for me. So maybe we'll keep it at Friday, but uh, we plan on doing more regular shows. We'll have my wife doing probably uh, some more interviews and that as well. So uh, just keep us uh, keep us in your prayers. Follow us on Facebook at Theology Matters with the Plues. Appreciate y'all, and God bless.